I've invited a special friend of mine, Pastor Renee Sleffer, to come and preach inside of our growth series a very special growth message for all of us. Now, he's been here before. Some of you may recall he's been the pastor of Twin Lake Church for 28 years. He's been married to his best friend, Lori, Lori for 34 years. He's got three great kids, uh, David, Jonathan and Elizabeth. He's got three grandkids. He's got him wrapped around their fingers. And he's a fabulous preacher and teacher. So take it away, Pastor Renee. Well, what a huge privilege for me to be with you again at New Beginnings Community Church. I have been a friend, and not just a friend, but frankly, an admirer of your pastor, Herman Hamilton, for some years now. And I just love what your church is doing. In fact, to many friends and even relatives who live there in the peninsula, I have recommended NBCC many times. Well, I love the fact that we're going to be continuing this series, Grow. As you know, Herman started this series uh, post-Easter, and we've been talking about how during the pandemic, we can feel like we're in the dark. The good news is that's where seeds grow. They're under the ground, in the dark, but they're already putting down roots and putting up shoots and learning to grow for the future. And that's what this series is all about. We want to grow into Christ-likeness. And today, I want to start with a true story of a very close friend of mine named Dan Adranya. Here's what happened. On Christmas Eve several years ago, Dan got a severe form of viral pneumonia on his way to our church here for the Christmas Eve services. He actually stopped at the emergency room of our local hospital, Dominican, went in and Dan passed out while waiting to be seen by doctors. He slipped into a coma in that moment. While in the coma, Dan developed gangrene because the coma lasted for a number of months. And over that period, to save his life, the doctors had to amputate both of his legs, right below the hip. And so when Dan woke up from that coma, two months later, he was now completely healthy, except his legs were gone. I was in the hospital room with Dan on that day. And I have to tell you, Dan's attitude from day one has been absolutely amazing. Of course, Dan grieved, but overall, he has learned to be filled with the joy of the Lord no matter what life throws at him. Talk about learning to grow in the dark. Dan now has prosthetic legs. In fact, they're amazing. The science of prosthetics these days is amazing. If Dan is wearing long pants, you cannot tell that he has prosthetic legs. They look like absolute real legs, but this has gotten him into trouble at times. Dan came up to me before church one day and he said, Renee, I have to tell you what happened to me this weekend at Six Flags Great America over in Santa Clara. He was visiting the amusement park with a friend of his wearing his prosthetic legs with long pants and he decides he's going to ride a roller coaster named Invertigo and here is a picture of it. It is one of those extreme coasters that launches you out of the gate 60 miles an hour right away. And then you go into this series of loops and twists and crazy barrel rolls and turns. And then it goes almost vertically straight up and stops 
just like this, and then you go backwards through the same series of tracks. Now, a couple of other things you have to know about in vertigo to understand this story. When you ride in vertigo, you're not riding next to the person in your car, you're facing them so you can watch each other scream in abject terror or something like that. And secondly, you have to understand that in Invertigo, the tracks are above the cars. You are suspended from the track, so you, you're sitting on the seat like, like, like a ski lift, and your legs dangle. So here's what happens to Dan. He gets onto Invertigo, and his friend is shunted off to another car, and so Dan is riding next to about a fourth or a fifth grade little girl that he has never seen before in his life. And so Dan gets on the roller coaster, and he's excited to go, and the countdown starts, three, two, one, boom! They got shot right out of the gate, and Dan's legs immediately whip back over his shoulders at a biologically impossible angle, the soles of his shoes facing straight backwards. And immediately, the little girl looks at him like, am I, am I believing what I am seeing with my eyes? Then they start going through all these twists and turns and barrel rolls, and Dan tells me his prosthetic legs now loosened up are spinning and going off in all these crazy angles and they start to spin like, he says, Renee, it was like a cartoon character's leg, like the Roadrunner in one of those Warner Brothers cartoons. My legs are just pirouetting like this. And then he says, when, when the track stopped suddenly in midair, Dan's legs whipped forward and his prosthetics shot out of his pants over the head of the little girl he was facing into the clear blue California sky, like torpedo tube one, pew, torpedo tube two. Pew. Then they went backwards along those same tracks and Dan's pant legs, now empty, are whipping toward this little girl like a flag and a stiff breeze. And Dan says, that little girl is now grabbing her own legs, screaming, no, Lord, please let it not be me. The roller coaster comes coasting to a stop. Dan's not going anywhere. He's waiting for his friend to find his prosthetics. They were fine. But Dan says immediately when the safety restraints were released, that little girl just went sprinting away from him, screaming at the top of her lungs, ah, because she had just seen a roller coaster whip somebody's legs off. And I said, well, Dan, for crying out loud, why didn't you tell her that they were prosthetic legs? Here's Dan's answer to me. Renee, I've tried to, but I was laughing too hard. Wow, talk about learning to grow no matter what life throws at you. I don't know about you, but I want to be more like Dan. I want us to learn to react to life like Jesus reacted and like my friend Dan reacted. This is an area that as I look around, I see... As a pastor, I see believers in Jesus responding to provocation and responding to the roller coaster of life, the ups and downs of life with, with fear and with anger and not with love and with joy and with peace and with kindness. This is so important right now in this cultural moment because not only do we just go through normal ups and downs in life, but there are people whose job it is right now to make all the ups and downs seem worse. There are people whose job it is right now to provoke you to outrage 
and fear and anger to push your buttons. And what I want to do today is to see how Jesus's most countercultural trait was this. He could not be provoked. He absolutely could not be provoked. His disciple Peter saw this with his own eyes. He said about the crucifixion of Christ. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. What was the example? When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And this wasn't just some weird personality quirk of Jesus. This was central to who he was and to who he wanted us to be. Here's what I want to do today. I want to go verse by verse through part of a sermon that Jesus preached about this, about how to react so that you are unprovocable. And it's found in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 37, where he says, if you are a Jesus follower, this is how I want you to live. If you have a Bible, turn to this passage right now. And I want to ask you, are you open today to what Jesus has to say to you? Jesus says, but to you who are listening, I say this, are you listening to what Jesus is saying to you? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. For example, if somebody slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, Do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Now, to really understand these verses, it's very important to understand Jesus' cultural context. Israel, Judea, was under Roman rule. Did you know they were the most taxed people in human history? Not Californians, Israelites in first century Roman rule. The soldiers, Roman soldiers, could demand anything. Give me your coat, give me your house, anything. And the people suffered under Roman violence at times. Roman governors just slaughtered the people to make a point. And of course, this led to anti-Romans, the zealots who would attack the Romans. Their battle cry was restore the kingdom of God, restore Israel like it was under King David. But what this created, of course, was just cycles of rebellion and retribution absolute bloodshed. And Jesus is growing up in this culture. 
And he says, someone has got to stop the cycle. Jesus is saying, yes, I want God's kingdom to come. I am for justice. I am for reconciliation. But the way that happens is not through rebel armies and it's not through Roman armies. Lasting change comes through the heart, not by force. And by the way, was he right? Today, no more Roman armies, no more rebel armies, but that little movement that Jesus started is still here because those original followers of Jesus, even under severe Roman persecution, heard his words and lived them out and changed their world. And in those verses we just read, Jesus is calling you and me to three counter-cultural choices that you and I must make to be like Jesus. We Christians say we're Christians, we're we're little Christs, we're like Jesus, and yet we don't act like he's asking us to in these verses. We don't react to provocation like Jesus recommends. And I am convinced that these three choices are the key battleground right now for our faith. This is it. This is a battle going on right now for our very identity as Christians. In these verses, Jesus is calling us to resist three things in a culture of outrage, a culture that tries to provoke you. And number one is this, resist anger and embrace kindness. Resist being provoked into anger and react instead with kindness. When he says, love your enemies, do good, bless them, pray for them. If somebody slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other. By the way, you've heard that saying, turn the other cheek. What's that really all about? Well, in Jesus' culture, people greeted each other by kissing on the cheek, like... I happen to be a Swiss American. I'm first generation. My parents and all of their families are still in Switzerland. I'm actually a Swiss citizen as well as an American citizen. I grew up speaking the language. I've worked over there. So when I go back to Switzerland to visit my relatives, here's the thing. Every time you see a relative, every time you see a friend, you kiss on the cheek. Not just one time. Not just two times, like in France, but three times. We don't do that here in the States, and here's where this begins to be a problem. Every single time I go back to Switzerland, I forget what cheek goes first. Is it right, left, right, or left, right, left? And so this leads to a situation where the first relatives approaches me at the airport, and it's always a little bit awkward. I try to figure out what is their approach vector, and I always get it wrong, and I always bump foreheads with that first person. Here's my point. In Jesus' culture... Kissing someone on the cheek was also a thing. It was also a sign of friendship. So I want to suggest that Jesus is saying more here than just what we imagine, just be passive and let them slap you. I think what he's saying is be proactive and offer them your friendship instead of the violence that they are trying to provoke you with. Jesus is saying, make that enemy into a friend. So here's my question. Are we doing this? Are we known for this? These days, when people think of Christians, do they say, those Christians, 
You know, no matter what we throw at them, they always respond with a smile, with such grace and kindness. Look at how they serve even those who dismiss their faith. You know, I'm so glad that that we serve in a church here at Twin Lakes Church and you serve in a church at New Beginnings Community Church where you do value this kind of response to a post-Christian community that we live in here in the Bay Area. But is this our testimony as a group to our culture? Let me tell you two true stories. Uh, I just finished a great book, Christians in the Age of Outrage by Ed Stetzer. And he says this, and I wonder if you agree. He says, our world seems to be awash in anger, division, and hostility. Outrage is all around. He says, we are living in a day, and this is indeed our moment when we need to live like Christ in the midst of the shouting, anger, and hatred. Amen to that, right? Unfortunately, much of the time, it's us doing the shouting. In his book, Ed tells this true story. In 2013, a man named Caleb Kaltenbach found himself in the middle of a social media firestorm. Want to know what he did? He tweeted a picture that he just thought was funny. He was shopping at Costco and he was looking at the book table when he noticed that the Bibles were all stacked in the fiction section. Now, just to make it clear for the sake of this story, that was an error. It was a mistake. Somebody had mislabeled the Bibles and stacked them next to the Harry Potter books. But he just thought it was amusing, like like kind of a little funny thing to, to, to post. So he tweets this, a picture of the Bible that they were selling under this caption. Costco has Bibles for sale under the genre of fiction? Hmm. And he says later, he just meant it to be kind of a joke. Well, a certain provocateur on a certain cable news channel sees this tweet. He runs a story on their website, and here it is. The headline is, Costco, the Bible is fiction. And in the article, he goes on to promote the idea that Kaltenbach has uncovered a conspiracy against Christians by Costco. Millions forwarded this story. And they posted comments like, how dare Costco? This is a slap in the face to all Christians and inevitably boycott Costco. All of this despite the fact that Costco, whose CEO, by the way, is a devout Catholic believer, immediately apologizes and says, whoa, that was a a mistake. We're going to set things right tomorrow. All this despite the fact that Caleb Kurtenbach, the originator of that photo and that tweet, himself kept saying, hey, 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 I just thought it was kind of funny. I am not outraged. I don't think Costco did this intentionally. It was a funny mistake. Didn't matter. As Ed Stetzer puts it in his book, the Christian outrage machine had become a runaway train again. You know, people were on the roller coaster, legs were coming off, and they just got outraged. Second true story. The comedian and actor Sarah Silverman, who is not a Christian, her comedy is often very not safe for work. She's sort of infamously offensive, right? But listen to this. 
December 2017, Sarah Silverman is viciously attacked on her social media account. Now, I have received insulting emails, but nothing like this. I read what uh, somebody posted on her social media account. It was the worst, profanity-laced, hateful, sexist, anti-Semitic commentary. So her fans jump in on the comments section and defend her and attack this guy. But she responds with astonishing grace and compassion. She replies to this man after about a day, and she asks him first, why did you lash out at me in this way? Tell me your story. She builds bridges. And this is all happening in real time in the comments section while everybody is watching, everybody is reading the real-time interaction between her and this, this hater. That man eventually admits that he has mental health struggles. So she writes, I encourage you to seek counseling and I'll even pay for it. Then she says, wait, I thought of something better. I'll set up a crowdsourced account so that all of my fans who have been adding their own comments here have a chance to help pay for your mental health counseling together which was brilliant. And faced with all of this grace, guess what? The man in the comments section apologizes for his comments and agrees to get help, and her fans are brought along on this journey to healing, and they donate thousands to help this man. Now, which of those two people behaved with the kind of kindness that Jesus told us to show to our enemies? The Christian media commentator who reposted Caleb Kurtenbach's tweet about Costco and drummed up millions of people's anger, or Sarah Silverman, who doesn't even claim to be a Christian herself. Again, I don't endorse all of her comedy, but do you see the power of that story is the same as the power of the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told? Because in some people's eyes, the Samaritan had all the wrong politics, wrong religion, wrong ethnicity, yet Jesus' point to the ultra-religious Pharisees was the Samaritan was the one who behaved with godly kindness. So, what about you and me? How do we respond? on the crazy roller coaster of life, to provocation. I want you to think about that. I'm going to circle back to that. But the second choice that you and I need to make to actively swim upstream in our outraged culture is this. Resist tribalism and embrace grace. Resist tribalism, embrace grace. You know, in Jesus' day, those anti-Roman zealots were splintering into smaller and smaller groups, each of them accusing the other of not being true believers. And it got to the point where the zealots were the ones who were literally killing each other because they saw all the other groups as not pure enough. And this is a huge danger in the Christian culture right now, too. As Ed Stetzer says in his book, in The Age of Outrage... We are perpetually encouraged to view others purely in categories of friend or foe. Are they on my side or against me? Do they like my politics and politicians, endorse my worldview, embrace my ideology? This is a product of the flesh. It is selfish, divisive, 
wrathful, pretending to be righteous, but simply driven by our flesh. And Jesus addresses this tendency. He says, if you love those who love you and do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. You know, you might be proud that, well, you know, I will be there for my family. You might pat yourself on the back. I'm loyal to my wife. That's fine. That's great. But Jesus is saying that's not really exceptional. And Jesus is calling us to be exceptional, astonishingly exceptional in the way we respond to the ups and downs of life and and to provocation. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies. What is exceptional is when you are willing to love someone who is nothing like you and in fact even actively despises you. What does this actually look like? Well, this looks like Jesus going to a sinner's house party, right? And outraging all the religious people in his day. And so if I am going to be like Jesus, what does this look like? Imagine this. Are you ready to imagine something crazy? Imagine a pro-life, Bible-believing, conservative Jesus follower saying to their atheist, radical, socialist neighbor who's on the board of Planned Parenthood, come on over to my house for a barbecue, friend. People say, you're glossing over important issues. This is not glossing over important issues. This is not pretending differences aren't real. This isn't compromising biblical principles. This is believing God is in charge, not me. This is believing God may have a different timetable with everyone than he has with me. This is believing God created them in his image, and so they have dignity too. One of the most inspiring modern-day examples of this that I've ever heard is the story of Daryl Davis. NPR did a story on him recently. Daryl, this is Daryl here, he is a blues musician, but he has what you might call an interesting hobby. For the past 30 years, Daryl, a black man, has spent time as his hobby befriending members of the Ku Klux Klan. Yes, I said befriending as in literally hanging out, going to movies, going to concerts, going to restaurants. In doing so, he has seen more than 200 of them, as he puts it, give up their robes. I want to show you a picture of him with one of his friends. That's Scott Shepard on the right. He is a former Ku Klux Klan leader, and there is Daryl. They work together now, speaking at churches and to other groups, to promote what they call the redemptive power of loving friendship. Daryl says in the NPR story, Daryl says, let me tell you how you win over your enemies. Step one, send him a text message. What are you doing Friday night? Something tells me he has been way more effective changing people's minds with friendship than hundreds of people with their Facebook posts. Do you remember Jesus says, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Aren't you grateful that God has been merciful to you? Aren't you glad God does not hold every dumb or stupid or foolish or evil thing that you've done or said against you? Well, Jesus is saying, if grace is at the heart of our faith, then people need to see this grace in us and receive grace from us. 
Somebody said, the way some Christians are acting, it's like we serve Ares, the god of war, and not Jesus, the god of love. And that brings me to the third choice we must actively make to be like Jesus. And it's this resist judgment and condemnation and embrace forgiveness. Resist condemnation and embrace forgiveness. When he says, do not judge, do not condemn, forgive, this doesn't mean don't be discerning. It doesn't mean let yourself be conned. It doesn't mean you don't speak out against evil where there is violence and discrimination and sin, where there is racism, where there is violence against people of color. We speak out, we condemn. The key Christian way to speak out, though, is you don't fight hate with hate. You don't fight evil with evil. You fight it with good. You see, Jesus is contrasting two outcomes, saying the goal is not condemnation, but redemption. You don't stop at condemnation and think, well, my job is done here. I have condemned this. Jesus says, your goal needs to be to redeem that person, because that's God's goal. These verses we've been studying today you probably won't be surprised to learn they were life verses for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And in a sermon he preached on these very verses at a church in Birmingham, Alabama in 1957, he says this, we cannot dismiss this passage as hyperbole, just sort of an exaggeration to get over the point. This is the basic philosophy of our master, agape love. You see, love has within it a redemptive power. There is a power there that eventually transforms individuals. You just keep loving people, even though they're mistreating you. Keep loving them because love is redemptive. And so this morning, I look into the eyes of all my enemies in Alabama and all over America and over the world, and I say to you, I love you, and I would rather die than hate you. And I'm foolish enough to believe that through the power of this love, somewhere men of the most recalcitrant bent will be transformed and will be in God's kingdom because we have the power to love our enemies and to bless those persons that cursed us and to be good to those who hated us. And we even prayed for those who despitefully used us. Man, what an example of the verses that we're studying today. And what an example of how to live out Micah 6, 8. This is a verse that I love. And it famously tells us, this is what the Lord your God requires of you. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. You can do justice, but also love mercy and humility. The way Christians sometimes act these days, it's like we think it says, do justice, love outrage, and walk angrily with your God. No, do justice and love mercy and walk humbly. Why? Again, a quote from MLK, make it your goal not to destroy your enemy, but to redeem your enemy. And so I have a question for you, and I've been asking this a lot of myself lately. Are the voices I allow to influence me majoring on condemnation or redemption? The pastors I listen to, the bloggers I read, the podcast, and the the talk show hosts that I watch, are they angry, tribal, and condemning, or kind, gracious, and forgiving? 
Before we wrap up, I want you to meet somebody for whom all this is more than theory, somebody who's moved from the first part of these sentences to the second part. This is a friend of mine who's also a minister here in the Bay Area named Sean Smith. And the other day, I called Sean up. Here's part of our conversation. You have total credibility, like no other person that I know personally, to talk to this issue of loving your enemies and of forgiveness on September 19th, 1971, an unarmed black man who was an IBM chemical engineer was pulling his car in front of his house when he was killed by two San Jose police officers. They claimed that this man had attacked them with a crowbar and it was proven in trial that they had planted the crowbar on him. It was their crowbar. And that man was your father. Yes. And you were a young man experiencing this. Talk to us about how you process something like that. I, I wasn't raised, uh, Pastor Renee, to, uh, in a Christian home per se. I mean, we were God-fearing. So I, I just didn't have the tools. So initially, I, I was distraught. I was angry. Uh, now I look back and recognize that there was severe depression in the midst of all of that. Uh, I had this anger, but my mom being biracial, she helped me so that I didn't direct that towards the race of the officers. But uh, police officers in particular, uh, and people in authority, I, I think there was definitely this animosity. And in that time, I, I think I sunk into a depression. Ultimately, I, I gave my life to Christ. I encountered Jesus. And he overwhelmed me with this agape love. And in that moment, you know, I, uh, my sense in my heart is I needed to forgive the officers. And I said, Lord, I forgive them. I let them go. But in that moment, if I were to be honest, the agape love of God so overwhelmed me. Uh, I, I was crying, but it wasn't when I was crying because of the pain. I was actually crying because of the elation that I felt this freedom. And part of me walking out that freedom is I needed to forgive because bitterness becomes your own self-imposed prison. It becomes a trap. How is that even possible to love your enemies, to forgive those who've hurt you this way? I think you, you, you don't think of it like, here's the way I, I like to answer that, Renan. That's a great question. I think, number one, we, we're not limited to honoring people who are honorable. We honor people because we're meant to be honorable. Like, you don't honor people because they're, they're deserving of that honor. You honor people because you're honorable. You're following in the footsteps of Jesus. And so I think the thing with forgiveness is I, you can't, like, here's what we typically do. I'll forgive once I see the level of your, uh, you know, uh, contrition, your restitution, all that stuff. And when all that stuff's fulfilled, in other words, what we're saying is we're putting justice over love. We're saying, I really want justice. I'm not really after love. And uh, one of the things I think is so important is that as believers, justice is not the end game. And that sounds controversial to people. We all want justice. But at the end of the day, I've got to say that I forgive people because I have been forgiven. I forgive people because I'm light in the midst of darkness. The fallen world's view is that you got to give me something. And when you prove yourself worthy, then I will give you forgiveness. But that's not what Jesus did on the cross. I've heard you say we're not just called to achieve something. We're called to model something as Christians. Yes. Yes. We're called to, to model the disposition of the Father. We're still called to walk in the fruits of the Spirit. 
that we're, we're not to be a retaliatory group. Uh, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He, he operates his kingdom in a whole different frequency and dimension than we do. You love those that hate you. You forgive those who don't deserve forgiveness. You love your enemies. You bless those with peace. You turn the other cheek. You're doing all these things that just doesn't seem to make sense. But Jesus isn't calling us to be a doormat. We're to fight. We're just to fight with the disposition of the Father. There's a way that we fight as opposed to the way the world fights. And Jesus wins his fights. I love that. What a powerful story. And I love how Sean roots all of that in his discovery of the agape love of Jesus Christ. When we abide in Jesus, when his agape love flows from us, even to our enemies, we do that because we realize that he lived all this out. Do you see that? That's what you've been studying in in, in this series. He lived all this out to the point where he gave his life to save even those who were nailing him to the cross, to save even us. So let me ask you this. What are you allowing the ups and downs of life to evoke from you? And what are you allowing the challenges of life to provoke from you? There is an industry right now on social media and on the internet designed to provoke and evoke from you the exact opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. Are you allowing that to happen? Or are you willing to grow in the fruit of the Spirit the way that Jesus Christ told us to respond to the ups and downs of life and even to provocation? Do you remember I opened with uh, people outraged at how the, the Bibles were stacked at Costco, right, on their book table, and somebody wrote in their response to that post, this is a slap in the face to all Christians. Well, what if it was? What did Jesus say to do when slapped? We offer friendship. We love. And when we do that, we know that we will grow and are growing and learning to be like Jesus in our reactions to life. Let's pray together. Oh God, help us in our lives and all of our attitudes to have your love living in us and through us, this love that can solve every problem that we face. And I pray that we would radiate the love of Jesus and not the anger of man. Help us to fight evil, not with evil, but with good. I pray that we would not let division weaken us, but that we would join together as believers in Jesus in a great fellowship of love and bow down at your feet. And in the name and the spirit of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. What a challenge, Pastor Renee. What a challenge. Okay, guys, listen, if you've been with us at NBCC or if you join us for the first time, here's, here's what we do. We ask ourselves, how do you respond? And the way we engage with a message like that is through our connection card. So it's popping up right now in our Facebook feed. It's also on our website. If you, if you have our NBCC app, then just go ahead and open that app. Go to the Sunday screen in that app. Uh, uh, tap on the connection card section. And, and you're going to see next steps with Jesus. And for some of you, your commitment right now, you, the commitment that you're faced with, is to say yes to Jesus, that you're going to be a Jesus follower. You want him to be Lord and Redeemer of your life. And this is the moment for you to surrender. And for others, it's returning to your faith. For others, you may just want some questions answered. And then uh, there's a response to the message. And I want all of us to consider participating in this response to the message. Here it is right here. I hope you can affirm this. I will build bridges of love 
watch this, to those who have provoked me to contentious behavior. Are you ready to make a commitment to do that hard work through the power of the Holy Spirit? Just raise your hand or check that box uh, affirming that commitment in the app. Can you just go ahead and say, count me in? And then I want you to think about this reflection question. You might want to take a picture of it with your phone. Here it is. What is one way the Lord is nudging me towards growth? 